1: Welcome to the Andor Podcast, where the Lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David. I'm
2: John, and this is our podcast on the Star Wars Disney Plus show, Andor, Season 1, Episode 11, Daughter of Ferrix."
1: In this podcast, we'll be talking about our overall thoughts about the episode and reviewing some open questions before moving into a scene-by-scene breakdown and then some listener feedback.
2: Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to andor at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those questions on the next episode. We're covering Andor in full, and if you want to talk Star Wars with us sooner, join us on the Bald Move Discord server, link in the description below, and at baldmove.com.
1: If you're enjoying our coverage of Andor or any of the other shows we're covering, and you'd like to support us directly... Head over to patreon.com slash the lorehounds and subscribe today for early and ad-free access to every episode. Of course, you can always find our ad-supported episodes on our public feed. Just search for Lorehounds in your podcast application of choice.
2: Another quick ask, please take a moment to rate the podcast and leave a review if you feel moved. Ratings and reviews help other people find the podcast, which helps us make more podcasts.
1: We're three episodes into The White Lotus over on HBO. And the first episode of our new series, Silmarillion Stories, will drop next week, just in time for the Thanksgiving holiday. We've got more plans in the pipeline for December. Yeah,
2: we're going to be doing an episode of Tales of the Jedi. We're going to be doing another Silmarillion story, of course, our monthly second breakfast, and a, an interview with the author of Origins of the Wheel of Time, a new book about the Wheel of Time series.
1: That was a really cool interview. I can't wait till we drop that.
2: It was super cool. That guy was fascinating.
1: Yeah. I hope we can have him on some more in the future.
2: Yep. All right, David. Why don't we get to our overall thoughts on episode 11? What'd you think?
1: Well, um, for a setup episode, it had a lot going for it. We obviously needed to sort of reset from that very emotional high last episode. And we know that 12 is just going to be a banger. Like, if we can trust all. 10, 11 prior to this, we just we know that 12 is going to be something hot. Yeah. And so I thought it was nice to have a little, little bit slower pace, reset things a little bit for 11. So I feel really good about this episode. There's a lot that I enjoyed in it. I loved the comedy that we had with the sergeant and his call uh, back <laughs> to uh, Cyril. Uh, that was like it, uh, just a real nice l- moment of levity. I mean, there's so much serious and heavy stuff in there. And I thought that that was a really nice way to inject some comedy. I also noticed that in this episode with the scene transitions, they weren't doing those really cool motion-driven scene transitions. There was a lot of simple straight cuts in this. But what I did notice on my third watch um, (laughs) was that they were overlapping the sounds. And if you had um, the—I had the closed captioning turned on during one of my rewatches— and the sounds from the next scene may not have been necessarily audible, but they were noted in, this, in, the, in the closed captioning. And then so I started listening for more of that more. And what they were doing is, rather than giving us visual energy to drive the scene transitions, they were giving us sound design to transition us over to scenes. And I thought, wow, again, just a brilliant, smart, uh, creative television making that just makes me love this show even more
2: that's super interesting i did not pick up on that uh yeah you you know you've been talking about the transitions all season yes to see it go into the audible medium instead of uh instead of going through shots yeah yeah that's that's really cool yeah
1: what did you think of the episode
2: i thought it was really good i thought it was really emotional even compared to the other episodes Uh uh-huh um you know i we felt like the triumph in the last episode But this episode was like, all right, now we're going to bring you down on every front. (laughs) Uh, So it was really good. It was definitely, like you said, a setup episode, but it was deep on every level. And it was making me sad for droids, which I didn't expect. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to seeing what Tony Gilroy has promised for the finale. That's right.
1: Let's uh, quickly hit some open questions before we get in some uh, deeper thoughts. Yeah. Last uh, podcast, we kind of put some of our deeper thoughts at the end, and this time we're going to try and sort sure of push them up to the front here and, and have some more conversation before we get into the scene by scene. But I just want to tick through some of my open questions that we've been tracking. The Sky Crystal, we still haven't seen it. We still don't know where it is. Uh, Mon Mothba's daughter, we definitely got a deeper look into what was going on, what's going on with her this time around.
2: Mon Mothba's daughter. So, so she's into the Chandralan religion, yeah. we've learned. Yeah, Yep into the, into the, uh, the real door to door, uh, it types, it seems like. <laughs> right. Um, which is interesting that, that, uh, Mon Mothma is so reluctant and, and against and, and feels repulsed by making her be in an arranged marriage, which seems to be linked to the religion in some way. Um, and yet her daughter is, Really deep into Bible study here.
1: Yeah, I think we. I've got some more thoughts too when we get to that that scene. But it's certainly setting up. It's uh. It's certainly setting up some emotional stakes for Mon Mothma. and I think all season long we've been like going like, what's going on with her? She's acting kind of weird. This is like there's there's just weird stuff that's beyond just a you know preteen teenager parent relationship stuff. And I think all of that has been in service of setting her up for what's going to happen with Mon Mothma. So that's kind of like, I, I almost feel like I can scratch off this question now.
2: I think that Mon Mothma understands now that her daughter would probably acquiesce to an arranged marriage at this point, but will probably resent her later. Because that's likely something that Mon Mothma experiences. You know, I'm, I, I'm fine with it when I'm a teenager, when that's just the, the chandralan way. And then older, I'm like, wow, I missed out on my whole young adulthood. Right.
1: Right. All right. Uh, Cassian's briefcase. Well, we've got that squared away.
2: Yep. We got it. And Nemec's manifesto is right there. Right.
1: And, and not only did they, they, they made sure that we didn't miss it by when he bumped the cover and it started talking to him. So like, I thought, oh, okay, yeah, good job. I saw it, but I was looking for it. But it was a nice way to make sure that people, if they weren't paying attention in that moment, if you were going in for another chip, you know, in your bag of chips or something like that, you, you still caught the, the fact that it's there.
2: And I like the way they did it. Just like a voice there, a little bit. You you could you could ignore it if you want, mm-hmm. but it's not like Cassian hearing the voice of this man in his right. head, like. Yes, I am a revolutionary, and it's going to change your whole life. No, it was it was not
1: cheesy. It was really good. It was subtly done. Yep. Uh, we don't know what's in Karn's secret box, but he certainly finds his mother's uh, secret stash. Yep. Uh, so I don't know if that's going to be play a role at this point or if that was just simply a, a story thing. So I'm actually going to probably cross that off my list for now.
2: Is she going to get him arrested? Uh, I, <laughs> I feel th- like she's the kind of mom was going to get her son arrested.
1: No, I've got thoughts that when we get into it, uh, when we get into the scene by scene breakdown, I've got thoughts on what this is about. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we still don't know what they're making at the factory. Uh, I don't know that it, it matters. Um, if they bring it back, they bring it back. Uh, if not, it's just, you know, hey, the Empire is a big thing and it needs lots of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I can I'm resolved on that one.
2: I think that if they're going to confirm anything, it should be like, well, the ISB is getting a report on what happened on Narkina 5, and it should just be like in a diagram on a hologram or something like that. Yeah. Um, it, it should not be something where they're like, hey, this big project we have going, the Death Star, is really, you know, taking a step back because of Narkina 5. Uh, no, it should be like something in the background while they're discussing what happened.
1: Agreed. Yeah. It, 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 it'll be a nice little member berry. But it doesn't need to be necessary to the plot. Memberberry sauce, perhaps.
2: <laughs> not, <laughs> there you you know.
1: All right. <laughs> Are you going to have some memberberry sauce for your holiday coming up next <laughs> week?
2: <laughs> yeah, not not from a can either. It's got to be fresh. That's
1: right. Another question I had was who recruited Pack, and would that lead back to Luthen? Was it, we weren't sure if that was Clea or somebody else. I still want to leave that one open a little bit because it was sort of brought up, and I don't think that they bring those kinds of details up unless they're prepared to lay. You know. That's, that's some laying out some tracks for, for future stuff.
2: Yeah, although this show has also shown that it's not uh, a show that needs to answer every one of its questions. Correct. Yeah. So we'll see.
1: We'll see. And then I think this vow that uh, Monmoth Moth Monlani made also falls into that category of, oh, but it'll be nice to know, or it might come up later. It's, but again, just the fact that we know that they're, these people are committed and have sworn some sort of vow— it just goes to the the seriousness into the the character's uh, engagement with, with rebellion itself.
2: Yeah, I think that Cassian's gonna end up taking the vow at some point, maybe at the end of the season. I don't know.
1: That'll be interesting. That'll be interesting. Um, yeah. And we still don't know where Blevin is. <laughs> He's in a cage. Blevin's somewhere. gone. He's
2: gone. <laughs> He's gone. He would have been sent to Narkina Five. Maybe he showed up to Narkina Five and they, the guards Ooh. are like, "Oh
1: no." <laughs> All right, John, so with those uh, sort of open questions out of the way, I had some, some deeper thoughts that sort of wrestling with and thinking about and wanted to, to have a conversation with you about, is this show ultimately just good Star Wars, or does this really rank in the all-time greats of TV shows ever?
2: That's a tough choice, and I, I feel like you got this from Bald Moves Off the Clock, uh-huh. because they were talking about, they said, oh, you know, it's really good Star Wars. Not sure if it goes up there with Mad Men. Right. You know?
1: Yeah, and go check out uh, Jim and Aaron's coverage. Uh, Well, you've got to be a Patreon member to get there off the clock. Uh, But yeah, check that out if you're a Patreon.
2: Their Patreon, to be clear.
1: Yeah. Their Patreon, correct.
2: Yeah. So I, I think it's the best Star Wars show that I've seen. Uh huh. Again, I did not watch Mandalorian.
1: I can tell you it was better than Mandalorian.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: I enjoyed Mandalorian.
2: Yeah, and I love Star Wars Rebels. I've been watching that a lot. So, right. I, you know, I like Star Wars TV.
1: You only watch Star Wars now.
2: Yeah, I only watch Star Wars now. But anyway, I, I think it's probably the best Star Wars show I've ever seen. Is it one of the best shows ever? They got to finish it for me to make that determination. Okay. You know, it's it's like... Breaking Bad wouldn't have been one of the best shows ever if it was season one only.
1: Right. I mean, the way it's tracking for me is it it absolutely is going to go into the the top ten of all time TV shows ever. Wow. Just because it is brave hot enough take here. Oh, very. <laughs> as, as hot as uh, Luthen's uh, forced lightsaber things coming out of his side of his <laughs> ship. There. Um, the fact that this show is brave enough to make a lot of the choices that it's making. And that it's clearly written by very confident writers and being helmed by a very confident showrunner, that they can pull these things off and they really understand their craft. And when you see a master craftsman at work and what they produce, this show, to me, rises to that level. And. I think they're going to, I, you know, I, I would trust that they're going to land 12. And if we never got another, you know, second series of this, like this has been, this has blown my socks off. This has just really satisfied me as a TV viewer on that level that very few shows have. I think recently things that have like really hit me in this same sort of target zone, stuff like um, Queen's Gambit or Station Eleven. Or Pachinko was really good. This, I got the same sort of uh, feels from that as, not in terms of genre feels, but as in terms of, wow, this is really a well-crafted show. So, yeah, for me, it's tracking as an, as an all-time great.
2: Wow. That is a full-throated endorsement. Absolutely. You know, I think that the biggest thing with this story is that Tony Gilroy had a story that he wanted to tell, and he wasn't just about uh-huh. calling back. To different Star Wars, and he wasn't just about fitting in with the canon. He had other people help him fit in with the universe. And right. He had a lot of great, really talented production designers, you know, putting together this world of Ferex, putting together Narkena 5, etc. But really, what Tony Gilroy was doing was I have a story I want to tell. Sure, put it in your universe, but the story is about the characters and the drama. And we need more of that. We need more people who are less concerned with adherence to an established canon than they are telling a good story.
1: I absolutely agree with that assessment, and I'll take it a step further. And I really want to make this point quite strongly, and I'm, I'm happy to be a little bit vocal about it. Um, good thing this is a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> this show is doing the work, right? It's, it's laying down track from season one that's going to pay off. I mean, sorry, in episode one that's going to pay off in episode 12. Right. It is not taking the cheap way out on things. Like, oh, yeah, you know, Cyril and Deidre are going to team up to chase down Cassian. And Marva's going to, like, sneak into the secret tunnel under the Empire's headquarters and set off a bomb. They're not doing those simple, cheap things. They're making the difficult choices and they're creating a... a, a they're. Seriously, I think they're recontextualizing the entire franchise in this. Yeah, and what happens on Canari is as absolutely necessary as any L. Other that was like episodes one, two, and three. What happened there? Like, you know, some people were like, "Oh, do we? Did we really need that? What is this really telling us?" It's like what it's telling us is that Andor, who is a survivor and a person who is deeply affected by what the empire is doing in the and the old republic before that what what's happened to him to create him into becoming just this person who's just driven by su- survival and who doesn't care and then he goes through all the things that he's been going through during this season that they're showing us why the rebellion is inevitable that it's not just an intellectual exercise of light versus dark right it's like oh this is a story of good guys and bad guys and Pew pew, and like, hey, good guys win and they get a medal. Like, every step that Cassian is taking and every encounter that he's had in this, he's a guy who doesn't care. Nemec tells him, like, you sleep like a baby because you don't care about anything. And yet, through the course of this season, we've actually seen him become somebody who does care. Right. And when that pays off, because this show took its time and constructed the story very well and did the work. It literally, I think, is going to recontextualize the entire franchise of what the rebellion is about and what this struggle is about. You know, we've talked about, oh, the Empire, oh, yeah, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of mooks who can't shoot straight and, you know, they hit the, you know, they can't hit the side of the, you know, of a, of of a hanger, a Death Star hanger wall, Mm -hmm. right? If they're aiming at it. No, no, now we have very serious people who are very evil and we really understand the depth of their evil. And we look at the worlds that they've consumed and the lives that they have destroyed and the, the damage that they're doing in pursuit of whatever they're in pursuit of. And we really see and feel that over the course of 11 episodes. So, I mean, I guess this goes back to this thing. Yeah, no, I guess this just goes back to, to my point about, about this show is, is going into my all-time greats because it, it is doing the work.
2: I think that the show did such a great job, and I feel like we're almost going to a season recap here, but I feel like the show has done such a great job of showing how Cassian from the beginning was someone who paid his debts yep. and who was interested in personal dealings, but not in movements and not in you know galaxy-wide politics.
1: Right, transactional survival, yeah.
2: Whereas Narkina 5... Mm six years, you know, sentence in prison where he was never really going to get out, where he was, you know, he had to to escape and barely anyone escaped. Now he has a debt to all the people who got him out of there. Mm-hmm. And he has, he is owed a debt by the empire now. And I think that what they're showing us is sure, Cassian is in it for personal reasons, not for a movement, but now the movement is in line with his personal reasons, mm-hmm. and that's going to push him towards rebellion.
1: Right. That's interesting. That's a, that's a really interesting way to frame it is—and and Melshi says as much to him, you know, did, are, are, what if we are the only two that made it out?
2: Right. The Empire made it personal for Cassian.
1: I'm getting chills just thinking about how that, la- that line is landing differently for me now that you just said what you said, which is, whoa. What if, we, what if that is the case? What do we owe those guys? What do you owe Kino? Yeah. What if he didn't get out? Yeah. And when Kino says, when, he, when Kino looks at him and repeats that same line over the microphone, I think up until that moment, I don't think Cassian was thinking about anything but survival still. But when Kino said those lines, I think something changed in Cassian. I think he actually saw himself... For more than what he was as just a hey, I'm just a guy who's trying to survive. I'm just like skiing, right? Just trying to crawl my way out of the pit and just I'll crawl over whoever I need to. I think in that moment he really had that. I don't want to call it an awakening because this isn't like oh I opened my eyes and now I'm awake. It's it's been a very. I mean he's so reluctant to come to this role, right? Right. Which is brilliant storytelling because they're making us you know they're really making us work for it with him. You know, I
2: want to say two things about that. First of all, the reluctant leader is one of the best tropes in any fiction. And uh-huh. anyone writing a story should consider it because it, it literally goes back to like biblical writings, like Moses being a reluctant leader. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, this is something that has been part of the human canon for thousands of years. And it's a very powerful arc uh, showing somebody who is a reluctant leader being the best kind of leader. But also, I don't think that Cassian had an epiphany. I think that Cassian, I think that what we're being shown in the show is that Cassian needs to be slowly pushed by slight after slight after slight after, after meaningful interaction after meaningful interaction into this role. He's being molded. He's not being switched on.
1: Right. And that's why I'm saying that this show is doing the work of that. Right, and it's doing it the hard way, and it's doing it in the way that is not cheap one hour, you know, forty-eight minutes, you know, of of entertainment, but it's actually taking twelve episodes. I don't know how many total. What's the, the total minutes on on the season one? Because he's just hard boiled. He's survivalist, right? He's just like I came off a canary. I got my mom, and I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to survive. And now, now suddenly he realizes that his survival doesn't matter what he does or doesn't do. They're going to sweep him up. He's in this. And if not him, who?
2: Right. All right. Those are a lot of good general thoughts. Yeah. You got any more?
1: I do, but I can save them. (laughs) We got a
2: a whole other, we got two more podcasts minimum to do on this, so. All right. Sounds good. So why don't we move into the scene breakdown? Why don't we start at the title sequence, which we really never talk about, but uh, there's a change in music and the time clock sounds.
1: Yeah. So I'd heard some chatter about this, and uh, I even remember earlier on, like, you know, you want to skip the recap and you want to skip the opening title sequence, and, and you do that, and it still lands you at the beginning of the episode where the music is coming in and they twist the logo so that you can see it. And I know some people were like, eh, like, what is this? Like, why is this? And I was like, huh? And then like somewhere in the middle, somebody had said something about it. Oh, the music changed or whatever. And I, I kind of missed it. But this one really called me out. It really caught me out, which is that the, the sounds that we hear, the gonging sounds in the background, mm-hmm. are the sounds... They, they speak to the sounds of the guy who does the you know the the morning and evening chimes on Ferrix. Oh huh. wow that's yeah fascinating. Yeah. And I don't you know is, to me that's intentional. Like I was like, oh that sounds like the dude beating on the, the things and then what do we do? We cut to you know at some point we cut to that guy making those you know gong sounds. And so then I'm starting to think and, and I when I do my season rewatch the moment that episode 12 is, you know, once I've had maybe 12 hours to <laughs> dry my eyes and, you know, <laughs> clean, clean myself up, I'm going straight into my rewatch. I'm going to be paying attention to that opening sequence, because I think that there's something going on there, not in terms of a, a story plot element, but in a mood and tone thing. I think they're, they're, it's a prelude, is what it is, and it's, it's giving us signals, it's priming us, for what, they're wanting they, what they want to do in the episode coming in. Very interesting.
2: I want to watch for that when I go back, too, because I did not pick up on any of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just something that's just coming to my realization now. It's just finally hitting my consciousness. Like, oh, wait a minute. Like, there's something going on in this sequence. <laughs> so, yeah, more to go back for.
2: Well, cool catch. All right, before we get to Ferex, we've got to check in with Cassian and Melshi, where they escape.
1: Um, a tough scene. Yeah. I mean they <laughs> I love that they they bring us in on their bare feet cuz like the it's like what do you yeah there's no place to get shoes <laughs> out here right so
2: i'm telling you it's uh quentin tarantino is is really uh directing everything these days
1: <laughs> yes the notable foot fetish fetishizer yeah.
2: No, so one of my favorite things about this scene was when Cassian keeps going, they're leaving, they're leaving, and Melshi's like, shut up, basically. Yeah. And then finally, Cassian doesn't say, and he goes, tell me they're leaving.
1: Yeah. Like, <laughs> I need to hear it. And I, it really goes, like, they, they don't have to do a lot with Cassian and Melshi to really show us the bond that is being developed between these two how deep it's going to go. And I really do hope that in season two, we're going to see a lot more of, uh, of Melshi and, and Cassian uh, building on this relationship.
2: Surviving a traumatic experience together is a big bonding moment.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: And they've had several already,
1: yeah. many. Yeah, and, and if you remember, when Cassian first gets to Narquina Five and first is introduced to his table... One of the, I forget who it was, one of the other guys is like, oh, something like, oh, hey, new guy. So, Melshi says, no, his name's Keefe, right? So, at that very first instance of them meeting, Melshi and him are forming a relationship. And Melshi does that by respecting Cassian, by saying, no, his name is Keefe. Right.
2: That's really interesting. And this whole scene was really brutal in a way that we weren't even sure we were going to get at all because you and I last episode were saying, well, it doesn't really matter if they even show how they got off. Yeah. But I'm really glad that they did because yeah. it was a really good way to build up this relationship. I'm kind of curious where Melshi is going now because how do they link up again for Rogue
1: One? Yeah. Well, we've got a whole 12 episodes in season two for us to get more into their relationship. Yeah. Did you notice, too, just the, the, the wasteland nature of this? I thought that was really nice. Just another planet that, it, very similar to um, Cassian's home of Kanari, Same giant sort of quarry stuff.
2: And it's pretty clear by the end of the episode that it's because of the Imperials. It wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, an unlivable place before them. Exactly. So next up, we're back on Ferrix, And, you know, to tie into your intro music, unfortunately, Marva has passed.
1: So, there's a lot to talk about in this scene, but my number one issue is who was the disrespectful mother effer who used B2 as a side table to put their cup of tea down on? (laughs) I want names. (laughs) You do not disrespect my boy B like that. (laughs) Mm. No good. Not good. good. I'm sorry. I just had to get that off my chest.
2: No, it's all right. Listen, we're rated explicit. You do what you want.
1: Um... (laughs)
2: Yeah, no, it was, it was pretty rude there. Uh, I, I mean, this is the droid I've cared the most about mm-hmm. forever in Star Wars. I mean, I, I don't think we've ever had this emotional of a time with a droid. I mean, they try to make us feel for C-3PO and R2-D2. And, you know, there's times where there's like a little bit of a heart-wrenching moment, especially they, they really tried that hard in the sequel trilogy. But this is the deepest ever that they've gotten with the droid's emotions.
1: Well, even when a droid is dying, right? <laughs> and then they come waddling out, you know, a few, you know... A couple of scenes later, it's like, is there ever really death for a droid? Up until this point, they've always been sort of these one-dimensional sort of comic relief characters.
2: Right, they're kind of the dogs. They're like a mix between dogs and small children.
1: Well, I think B two is 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 more that than anything before because they because it, he does have this emotional depth to him. Right, I mean C three PO like okay, he could be offended because he was you know sort of. Playing that, you know, silly, uh, haughty sort of nature. And yeah, R2D2. I, well, and R2D2 didn't speak except in bleeps and bloops. So, yeah, I loved the close up of B2's eye. I just thought visually that was stunning to get. And the camera work that the, the technical work to make that shot work is actually not easy. It's not just like sticking the camera in there and and, you know, focusing. I mean, it was just, uh, it was gorgeous. It was a visually gorgeous shot.
2: Now, what do you think about Marva's death here?
1: I'm good with it. Uh, I'm not good that, you know, Marva's passed, but I'm good with how they've managed it. Uh, I, You know, I said this before in our opening conversation, this show is not a show that's taking the cheap way out on things. And to have, I mean, this is what happens, right? We know we lose our parents in this way, we lose our family members in these ways, and they just die, and that's just what it is. And even as Cinta says, you know, you know, it happens. Um, and rather than giving us some cheap thrills out of it or giving her some sort of heroic death, and we're like, oh yay, Marva, right? No, they just gave us something that was very real and very authentic. Um, and I think is going to have. Enormous repercussions for Cassian.
2: This was, first of all, really surprising to me. Uh Uh-huh. Because I thought that something was going on with Marva hiding her
1: pills. Right.
2: I actually thought that she was not dead, but maybe, like, overdosed or something. Uh Uh-huh. But not dead. Uh, And, you know, something with funny Star Wars medicine that it, it lets her, like, appear dead or something like that. Until I saw the body, and then I was like, All right. I don't think Brasso is fooled by this, you know. I think that she's definitely dead. I think it would be cheap if she came back now. Yeah, and I thought that having it daughter of Ferrex was a great way to title the episode and sort of signal like, yeah, this is the real thing. Yep. So I again, I agree with you that they did her death really respectfully. It was kind of surprising to see it off screen, but. Once I was in on it, I thought that they did a really good job.
1: I, I think this goes to, I, and I heard some other people talk about this, like, oh, you know, I don't see the body. So, I mean, we did see a shrouded body go out, but, you know, you know, I didn't see her die, so I don't believe it. And that's because we've been so cheapened and so trained to, to, to buy the cheap plot tricks. Here's some cotton candy. It's like, no, 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 no. This is a proper, proper story. things happen to people, and people just die. I mean, people just, it just happens. And they were giving us the signals of it, right? You know, with her wheezing and and the medication stuff. And so now I've got something I want to talk about with Cassie and and related to, to Marva's passing when we get to the end. But I think it's consequential. I think it's monumental, in fact. And the fact that they didn't do a cheap plot trick on it is going to pay off even more so when we get into episode 12. So they're taking her where? Are they taking her to a crematorium, it sounds like? Yeah, we get that later that she's going to get uh, made into a brick. Hmm. I'm just wondering if there's anything
2: to the detail that she hid the pills. Because what, what was that for, if there's nothing with it?
1: I mean, I could end up being wrong on this point, but I think it just was lending to the authenticity of Marva being Marva. And she was, as we talked about, right, you know, the that um, sometimes in these circumstances, you know, people are doing these things that aren't necessarily to their best interests. Um, and I think it was just lending more of that authenticity, because it did felt, very real, the way that she was getting sicker and the things that she wasn't doing to take care of herself, that felt very real and authentic, and I think it was at least in my mind up in, until they tell me otherwise I'm, I'm just taking it as, as more of uh, the fact that she uh, that they're playing it straight right
2: you know it's just it just felt very off when I compare it to how she was talking to Cassie and like no I'm just getting ready to be in the rebellion like, right I, it just seemed like kind of out of place, but I don't know, maybe there is something with it, maybe there isn't. I'm fine either way, but...
1: The whole thing's going to yeah, pay. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, the next time clearly is going to be centered on Ferex, which mm-hmm. is going to be re- very cool. Yep. Okay, so next we have more on
1: Ferex, Watching the Watcher, Sinta and the Imperials. So, uh, Sinta's got a job. She does? And we uh, we definitely have a uh, an ID on this guy now, because we saw him... They teased us with his identity last episode, and I-, I didn't quite recognize him when we first saw him. But now I'm—it's—he's clearly one of uh, Dedra's uh, lackeys, and he's just dressed mm-hmm. up. And- the Dedra dozen. The Dedra dozen, exactly. But I love the whole thing of like when they sort of give us a look of of Cinta as she looks up from you know uh, from her job, and then the guy's behind her, and it's like, okay, we know, we now know that she knows. That the uh, Imperials are watching Marva, or you know, you know Marva's home now. So I just thought that that's what's interesting there, right? It's gonna um, play into the culmination of what goes down on on Ferrex in the next episode.
2: Yeah. So somebody pointed something out on Reddit where it seems like they might have the description of the rebels on Aldani, but Sinta was in a, a location where. Anybody who might have seen her died, so she might be the only one able to go around with Imperial officers without being caught, whereas if Vel comes back and is seen, you might have an issue there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, as I was going to say, she was upstairs with uh, the with, uh, commander and his family. You know, I, I have to go back and look. I, I don't know if I jive with that, but I get the I'm getting the point, but I'm not sure if it technically lines up. Yeah. But the fact that she's a little bit more anonymous.
2: Yeah. I think that Vel certainly would be one of the most recognizable people from the raid. Okay. So, you know, if she comes back, which it seems like she's going to, I think that we might have an issue. I think I think you're gonna really have the the Spider-Man meme. You know, like everybody pointing at each other. Right. Like, like hey, you're all here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the next episode. <laughs> right. But I. But here's the thing. Like, sure, that can be done in a cheap way, but. This show has brought everybody back in a way that makes sense.
1: hmm Yeah. And, and again, you know, they're not, the characters aren't acting in service of the plot. The characters are, are acting in service of the characters, right? They're, they're doing right. what they would do. And I think, and it feels right that all of this is going down the way that it's going to go down.
2: Yeah. Okay. So next up, we're back with Cassian and Melshi. They see a ship. And they make a run for it, but they get caught.
1: It's a trap! Sorry.
2: It sure is. (laughs) And aren't you glad that nobody shouted that?
1: Yes, I am. (laughs) I was thinking it, though. I was thinking it.
2: (laughs) But that's okay. You can think it all you want, and we don't need Cassian to say it.
1: So what did you think of, uh, this is the most alien interaction, like, these are actually speaking line aliens. Non-humans, I should say. This show
2: was filled with aliens. Mm Mm-hmm. This show was filled with non-humans this episode. Um it it had them, it had people um where were the other people? I was just thinking about this this morning. Mm. Oh yeah, it, it had them, it had people in Cassian's hotel room. Uh it, it it had a lot more non-humans than we're used to.
1: Right. I was at first a little bit put off by this scene because they set it up so much so that you're like, "Uh-oh, they're caught." And then like the one guy's like prosthetic knife thing shoots out, and you're like, oh crap, like, what's going to happen to our heroes? And then they set them free, and then they're taken off in the ship. And I was just like, oh, this is a little bit kind of hokey. But the more I'm, I'm thinking about it, I, I would say that of all the scenes out of this whole uh, run so far to, to 11 episodes, this is the weakest scene for me uh, out of all of it. Mm-hmm. But it still works ultimately because it's showing it's it's telling us and showing us more of the impact of the empire and that like all the way down even to this you know weird little side planet with a couple of dudes who can't fish anymore like how much dissatisfaction there is out in the galaxy
2: and i mean i think the whole point is you can't go and destroy a whole planet with your prison and then expect the locals to help you yeah. round up prisoners.
1: Yeah, exactly. You
2: know, like, yeah. they have not inspired loyalty. They have not won, you know, to, to steal a phrase, the hearts and minds of the people of Narcina 5.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's no hearts and minds strategy at all in the Empire.
2: <laughs> no, and, and you can see that with these guys. And yeah, I agree with you. This was a little bit jarring compared to the rest of the show. Um, but it wasn't bad. So, you know, it would have been bad if they said it's a trap. So if they avoided that, I'm satisfied. Right.
1: Yeah. The, and the accents were a little bit hokey and a little bit silly, but it's like, okay, you know, I just kind of, I, I just let that one go for a little bit.
2: Okay. But how cool were the nets?
1: Yeah, they were very cool. <laughs> that was very cool. Uh, little technology there.
2: I liked how that. That seemed like a practical effect too.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, yeah, definitely some compositing, but you know, in the way that they cut it uh was really well done. But yeah, they did definitely got wrapped up in some weird nets.
2: The way that it was like kind of slimy, but still like pushing on them mm-hmm. was it, it was just it just felt so real. Yeah. Uh so so I really appreciate the again the production design here. Yep. So back with the ISB, Dedra grants a funeral permit on Ferrex.
1: Yeah. Um again some more exposition, like telling us stuff that we need to know. About, you know, a procession that's going to happen in front of the Imperial HQ. Great uh, info drop there about what happens to somebody on Ferex who's a prominent citizen. Right. Um, And then that plays into some other lines with Brasso and uh, B2 later. Um, So, yeah, it was just a very functional scene.
2: Well, two things: it shows that Dedra is thorough in her research of the culture she's oppressing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is something that you can't say about all of these people. Um I think that Dedra has a very strong attention to detail, and the other thing is this was an exposition dump that actually made sense because she's telling a superior officer like, "Oh yeah, this is what they're going to do, and so this is how we monitor it
1: right. Well, the juniors were asking were telling her, and then oh right, yeah. I'm
2: sorry, yeah, but you know she's on top of it, yeah. She's on top of it. She's not going to just wing it.
1: She's thinking through her decisions. She's taking the information and and understanding the situation and not just uh, reacting um, uh, with sort of hubris and um, and force.
2: And it's the same thing of like how she brings Karn in instead mm-hmm. of just relying on the report. Right. She's not one to just take somebody's word for it. She's the one to go find out for herself. All right, David, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to head over to Coruscant. And we're back on the imperial ruling planet of Coruscant, where Clea and Vel verbally spar.
1: I had to put on a jacket and some mittens when I was watching this scene. These two were ready to knife each other, man. I'm telling you.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And you could see both of their points, right? Absolutely. I think that... Claya and her boss Luthen have often forgotten about the human element, mm-hmm. and that you have to treat people as humans if you want them to believe in you mm-hmm. and believe in the cause. Um, in in a way that the Empire has also done that, and you see the same effect with the the two people helping Cassian and Melshi. And then you see also that Clay is under so much stress that she doesn't even have the emotional energy to deal with Belle.
1: Right. <laughs> She's like, you are just
2: the latest in a series of panicked faces. Great line. I don't remember how she phrased it exactly, but th- that's the vibe. Is is you know, you are one of a million problems of the same kind, and I just don't have time for you. And
1: Claire was like, "Bitch, please, <laughs> like you're what you Aldani. You brought him Aldani. <laughs> it was I loved. And Clay you could see her collecting herself, and then she used that moment to pivot away and to walk over to one of the other art pieces as if she's, you know, she's playing still the game of, you know, shopkeeper and customer just excellent, excellent blocking, excellent delivery. Uh, The acting on this is just phenomenal.
2: Yeah. It was, it was tough to watch a little bit. It was, it was really (laughs) uncomfortable, but again, really, I I could see the motivations of both characters. I don't think either one is fully right. I think that they both have to give a little something, Mm -hmm but
1: and clay you know, does ultimately uh, uh, right she says i'll tell him who it's from the informations from i'll make sure he gets the message um which seems to right. satisfy vel cuz i don't think vel was not going to take no for an answer and and she she got the answer she got an answer that she could be satisfied with
2: and i think this was sort of a primer for Luthen softening a bit later in the episode mm
1: mm-hmm, mhm for sure so in this place setter of an episode you know we got a, a lot of scenes here uh I think I counted them up to something like 16 different cuts in my copious number pages of notes here, that of all of the scenes and all of the information that we're getting in this uh, episode, this scene, the scene with Vel and Mon Mothma, and then the scene with Saw and Luthan are our three pivotal, pivot. Piv- there it is, there it is, pivotable, pivot- I can't do it, um, three important scenes in this episode where we really get character development and plot development uh, out of it. Everything else is, is very sort of a light touch and just sort of showing us the chess pieces moving forward or back and things like that. But this one and Mon Mothma and, and Luthen were um, very substantial. Uh, and I really liked the pacing of this episode that, yeah, they had to do a lot of work, but they still gave us something. They gave us three sort of momentous conversations here. That are really going to have ramifications for the storyline going forward,
2: yeah, this show is great at balancing that light and and heavy scene mm-hmm. balance, you know because you can't have every scene be the best scene of the episode and you can't have every scene be super deep like that right because it's just gonna it's just gonna be fatiguing for the audience for sure, okay, so speaking of scenes, so the next scene is Brasso staying for one night
1: so, so <laughs> oh my. God. I thought I cried Harporing. enough in 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 uh, episode ten. Like I was just like, oh man,
2: Brasso is the VIP of this season.
1: I really hope we get to see a lot more. I hope Brasso and and Cass- I hope Brasso makes it out, and I hope he's like one of Cassian's. You know. Uh, Real, like, dependable sidekicks going forward in season two. Uh, I, I like this actor. Oh, he's definitely dying. <laughs> Damn it, John! Don't do that to me. <laughs> but what
2: do you want me to say? Look at the show. He's dying.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. That, he, there's a very high probability. I'm not going to... I, nobody is safe. I mean, the only person who's really safe in this show is... Uh, well, we know what... Melshi and uh, Cassian. Like, those are the only two characters that have plot armor. Right. And
2: only plot armor to a certain extent, anyway. <laughs> only
1: a to a certain extent, because we know their ends.
2: Right. Okay. There's not a lot to say about this scene. It was really just re- really sad of, will you stay here? It was. People were comparing it to, like, the dogs who lay on their owner's graves after they die. Exactly. Which, absolutely true. I mean, I wonder if he's going to find the brick at the end. That's going to be... Ugh heartbreaking
1: well yeah that and that line she's in the stone now i was just like oh my god i just cried and then when when uh when b2 came charging out of his like uh charging station and and came up to him i was i was so sweet
2: yeah he's like oh i have to charge he's like you've been charging
1: (laughs) i even like the charging detail that they gave him the little green lights going you know it sounds like a you know, one of those newfangled washing machines that you get these days with these little musical chimes and chirps in it and stuff.
2: <laughs> so it really. Well, we don't all have that kind of money, David. No, no. That's to get our stuff. B2 no. emo. Yeah.
1: And just the shot compositions in, in, in this, too, with Brasso standing in Cassian's room next to his bed, and then the, you know, Brasso looking back at, at B2 in the dark. Really, really expert level uh, lighting and composition in, in these scenes.
2: Right. And you could tell Brasso doesn't want to stay, but he's no. so good to this droid. Right? He could have just been like, hey, you're a droid. Get over it. Let's go. Right. Uh, I, I have work. You know, I, I, I have physical limitations on what I can do.
1: We don't serve uh, our kind in here, right? Like, yeah, they, I mean, they told <laughs> us how droids are treated in this universe, and this is very atypical. I mean, you, to the point of Brasso going, you know, the daughters of Ferrix require your service of, of matters of great import, like he's negotiating with the droid. He's like, it's. it sounds like me talking to my seven-year-old, you know?
2: Right. Really interesting. Again, he's the combination between a small child and a family dog yep. in in his personality. Yep. Um A family dog who can talk. So next we're still on Ferex, but Bix is being questioned
1: again. Oof. Oof. That was, uh, Bix is not looking good. Bix is just defeated, right? So I have a, question that this will be interesting to see what happens in 12. It's, it was a question that was just hanging there for me when, when uh, Bix was first being interrogated uh, by Dedra. If Cassian ever finds out what they did to Bix, like what is that going to do to Cassian? How is he going to react to that?
2: Well, I don't think that Cassian has been a very vengeful person from the beginning. No. He's been very calculating. He's like... I think if if we're being realistic about it, he'd probably say, "Who did this to you?" Her. Well, she'll probably do it to somebody else. Boom.
1: <laughs> well, that'll be. I think that'll be interesting to see if whether we get an if if Cassian has an emotional response from this because his the emotional response to his mother's passing was pretty bottled up.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was all over his face, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that he just first of all, I don't even know if Melshi knows his real name at this point. Did he say it?
1: Uh, interesting. No, I don't think he has. I don't think he has.
2: I, I don't think so either. And so if you can't even tell somebody your real name, can you tell them that your mom, your can you even explain that it was your surrogate mom who who saved you from Canari? Right. Like it, it, there's just so many layers to it, which again would not have been as rich without those opening episodes. And can you can you really convey that? And do you want to? I mean, do you want to share this with essentially a stranger? I, I think that he just really needed to be in his own feelings with it.
1: Yeah. I thought it was really interesting with, um, the, with the way that they were treating Bix. Like, when the bald-headed officer comes to get her, he says, Bix, care to join me? And then when he's walking her through the hallway, he's as much supporting her. Like, I don't know if you've ever helped somebody who who's, needs a lot of help when they're walking, but like he was really lifting her up from the armpit and like really carrying her weight so that she could walk. And he wasn't dragging her into the room. And when the officer, who is the one who's been watching Marva's place, comes to to talk to her, he's very civil to her. <laughs> you know, I mean, as you know, he's not like, you know, oh, we're gonna torture you. I mean, he's not rabid and or being super sinister. He's just like, We need to ask you these questions. And, you know, if you don't tell us, you know, we're gonna have to call Dr. Gorst again. Very matter of fact, very kindly, and I think it's it, it really goes to show, we've seen other Imperial officers like, oh yeah, I just want to hang that guy and like, you know, like, yeah, just beat him all over the heads. Where with, with uh, Dedra's people, it's much, uh, sinister is not the right word, it's, it, the, they are, they're not, they don't need to bluster, they don't need to make a lot of noise, they don't need to show a lot of force, because they are in power. They are not panicking. It's cold. It's cold. It's cold power.
2: Yeah. So the biggest thing in this scene, you know, obviously Bix is just seemingly defeated here. Yeah. The biggest thing in the scene, though, is that they put up Anto Krieger's Mm -hmm. image. Yep. And they say, is this the guy that you saw? Mm -hmm. And she knows in that moment that she's won the interrogation.
1: Wait, okay, hold on. Back it up. Uh, Walk me through your argument here. Because I have a different interpretation. So I want to hear what you have to say.
2: I think that when she saw Anto Krieger, she's like, oh, my God, I gave them all the info that I have, and they still have the wrong guy, and they're convinced that this is the guy. Mm -hmm. All I have to do is act right, and they will get the wrong guy, and we will all get away
1: with this. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Not what I thought, but uh, do you think she's got enough presence of mind to think that?
2: I think that she's got a little bit. Okay. I think that there's a reason that she like hit her face instead of answering. Okay. I think she was trying to process it at least. Uh Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, because the way I was, my head cannon on it was that she was terrified that it didn't matter what answer she gave them that they were going to call Dr. Gorse no matter what.
2: Well, again, though, if they, if they're not going to believe her either way, then they're probably going to stay convinced that that's the guy.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
2: I think Anto Krieger is going to go down and they're going to think that they got access.
1: Well, uh, Luthin certainly kind of hopes that, doesn't he? Uh, because he thats I mean, that's what he tells Saul later is—is is that you know we'll we'll have a pl- we'll have a clear field to play in after after this goes down.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if that he puts together the axis part of it with that, mm-hmm. but I do think that you know Luthin sees this as a way to clean the slate a little bit.
1: Sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it, it just depends on on whether how hard they hold on to the theory that um, Krieger is Axis, right? That's, that's an interesting. So this is a, a plot level that I hadn't really thought through now. That's a good, it's a good pick. Regardless of whether she is playing that or not, the ramifications of them thinking whether, whether Krieger is uh, access or not, I think um, uh, is going to be an important element in how the ISB responds and how Luthan and the Rebellion are going to be able to operate after episode 12.
2: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if Bix is going to make it out of the season even. Yeah. I kind of doubt it, but I think that she's done her job for the Rebellion. Yeah. So next up, Vel and Mon Mothma talk.
1: So this is uh, the, the second of the three major scenes uh, for this, and it was devastating. Absolutely devastating. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if the, the interrogation of Bix was as emotion, emotionally painful or if this was was more emotionally painful. It
2: was pretty bad. It was
1: pretty bad. And you can see,
2: first of all, again, Vel is just flipping a switch the minute her niece comes in, and that was really a great acting moment to observe. Yeah. But also just this conversation being difficult and, you know, ending the last scene with Mon my last episode with I'm not thinking about it. well, that's the first untrue mm-hmm. thing you said, and mm-hmm. now she's clearly not even just thinking about it. You can see that she's decided what she's going to do here she you know the rebellion is bigger than her daughter's autonomy. she's decided
1: and as a as a parent myself the emotion- the play of emotion that was going on on Molin's face at the end of this scene was very, very affecting to me, like it really was just like oh, man, I hope I am never <laughs> near being in a position where I have to choose, you know, to make any choice that are, are weighted with these kinds of stakes. Well, let's hope you don't end up in a rebellion. Why don't we? I hope not. <laughs> let's hope that. I mean, you're sacrificing your, your kid in some way. And even though her daughter is trending in this, uh, um, you know, traditionalist, uh, way, it just, oh, just, it I, I don't know how to process it. I, I'm, I'm just stuck with the awfulness of it, of Mullen's position in this, in this situation.
2: I don't think it was accidental that the words they were reciting, the group was reciting at the beginning, sounded very much like wedding vows to me at the beginning. <laughs> I thought that something was happening right away. I thought that we were coming into the wedding.
1: Tethered in permanence. Yielding in acceptance, safe in the knot, in the binding, the old ways hold us. I mean, dude, oh my God! Right, and then the scene ends partially, or the the is it the first part? I forget where. There's a part of the scene. I think it's when the scene ends. We we hear tethered in permanence, yielding in acceptance, as the scene crosses over. Oh no, I think it's the that that's the that's the scene transition for them from when they're standing and talking before they're sitting down and talking. And then that line overrides those two scenes.
2: Well, either way, I think that they're putting out a lot of marriage vibes with those lines. Yeah. Um, And and I think that was certainly on purpose. So getting her out of trouble. First of all, do you think that Vel still has the sky crystal?
1: Even if she does, I think she probably does. But even if she does, I don't know that that's worth enough to pay off the debt. I think it was worth only like 40,000 credits or something like that.
2: I don't know. Well, actually also the other issue with it is I don't think Mon Mothma needs money as much as she needs anonymity with the money she has. Yeah. Yeah. She needs to be able to cloak past transactions rather than just replace money. Because I think there was a time to replace money at one point and she did replace as much as she could. Yeah. But there's still a 400,000 gap.
1: Yeah. And to to suddenly throw 400,000 into that account at this last minute, like you'd see the date of the deposit and you'd be like, oh, no, it's a little sus. Right. Um, yeah, so she's she's screwed no matter what she does at this point, unless uh, Skulden can bundle it up somehow and 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 be able to answer for it in a way that is logically consistent.
2: But is it not suspicious to go to an anonymous source too? Like I, I have to think that the Empire is going to be like, Oh, look, Mon Matma just anonymized all her transactions. That's not weird.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that we're, we're just made to believe that she's just exposed in this one area. So okay, I'm, I guess I'm not worried too much about that.
2: All right. All right. That's, that's one sticking point for me. But okay. But I, I think that overall this... Plotline is very compelling,
1: and I love, I love, love, love this relationship between Mon Mothma and Vel. I love their vibe, and I love the actors together, and I love the the characterizations and and the story that they have, and and making it um, that Mon Mothma has this one relationship where she can talk truth to right because she's living this double life, and then and Vel you know is in it with her but also has her own sort of double life that she's got to live. But they have together this not only familial bond, but this rebellious bond together. I, I, it's, a great, it's a great setup, and I'm, I, I really appreciate having it in the storyline.
2: Also, I kind of like that she did not ask Mon, and maybe she didn't have the opportunity, but we at least did not see her ever ask Mon, what is the solution that you found?
1: Oh, right. Well, that's, that, that was just... Um, twisting up the tension knob the whole way, because you just kept waiting for her to drop the name uh, Skulden, at least I was, waiting for her to drop the name Skulden and, and, and for Vel to like absolutely lose her shit, right? And going, what? You're doing right. what? You're doing who with what? Like, Vel would have lost it. And I think Mon was afraid of Vel's reaction.
2: Right. Okay, so Cyril, Cyril Karn, our guy, the man with the plan, that fails. He <laughs> receives a call in the middle of the night.
1: This is a pretty funny scene. This was very much like uh, the old skit, uh, Who's On First?
2: Yeah, it was pretty funny. This whole like, what? I can't hear you. It reminded me, you ever watch The Office where Jim is like, all you have to do, and then you'll be safe.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a classic comedy trope of, of, yeah, of miscommunication. And and you know definitely going back to you know Abbott and Costello um, with that uh, sort of shtick. So yeah, I really I really enjoyed it. I really liked having the sergeant back there. I don't think we're going to get him anymore, but uh, I thought it was a, a brilliant uh, use of a of an old character. And then like, how are we going to get Cyril to go to Ferex, Right, he's got to have you know some vital piece of information and who better to deliver it but the but the sergeant right
2: yeah no i i think he was a fun character that's exactly how much more i want of him i don't want him to be a recurring comedy right. bit but <laughs> uh that was a lot of fun and and it was a great way to to show Karn just like hair tussled in the middle of the night just like red-eyed like give me the Andor or details come on man yeah i needs more cassian
1: I thought the digital disruption effects, too, of the broken call were done really nicely. I felt very much like I was on a Zoom call myself. I had a lot of PTSD about it.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) The age of virtual meetings, such
1: as we are in right now. Yep. So this line, the mystery of your former triumphs has been vanquished. (laughs) What is his mother talking about there?
2: I think that she was basically saying like, oh, you worked with idiots. And so (laughs) the way that you failed is now illuminated for me.
1: Oh, very good. I like that interpretation. I like that one a lot. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I get it now. I get it now, Carney. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This this idiot (laughs) that you're talking to in the middle of the night. Yeah, it's a good interpretation. Uh, Now, something I want to point out here really quick, too, with uh, Cyril's line, and obviously we've got another scene with him. But, you know, a lot of people have been questioning, like, what is, who is Cyril? What is his purpose in this episode or in this series? Uh, I mean, he's not like any Star Wars character we've ever had, so a lot of people are having uh, trouble boxing him in. But if you go back to the original and or poster, right, where we have that sort of uh, A-frame design with Cassian up um, in the big bads position and then all the cast of characters down below him. The next vertical placement is Luthan holding a blaster, but then down from him, above Bix, above Daedra, above uh, everybody else, is Cyril. And of all of the secondary characters, secondary line characters, Cyril is physically the largest in size next to Cassian. So, there is something at play here. Uh, And I've got some more thoughts when we get to the next Cyril scene.
2: Oh, I think he's going to fuck up Dedra's plan. I think that's his role here.
1: Yeah. There, it, 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 it's going it, to, something's going to happen there. But like, I mean, if we look at it, the parallel between Cassian and Cyril is kind of hard to, it's unmistakable at this stage. So like, we'll, we'll just get, we'll just cover the scene now, I guess, is, you know, when Cyril goes to steal the credits from his mom. Mm hmm. Cassian, right, gets his credits back, and they're both on a trajectory to meet. And while Cassian is the competent, Cyril's the incompetent, right? And there's Cassian's the non-believer and Cyril's the believer, right? And now they're going to cross. So something, I don't know what, like I can't predict what's going to happen, but when these two meet again... That is going to be a fulcrum moment for the show, for the rebellion, for Cassian, for everybody involved when these two guys meet up again.
2: I think he's going to die this season. <laughs> I think he's dying in the finale.
1: Yeah. W- w- die, live, doesn't matter, really. I mean, the-, the fact that these two are inextricably intertwined, right? And they're going to be affecting each other.
2: Sure. Sure, but I I think Karn is a one-season character. I think what's going to happen is he's going to go to Ferex, Dedra's going to get really close to catching Cassian, and then all of a sudden Karn's going to be like, I can help, and then he's going to screw up the whole thing, Mm. and then he's going to die in the process. That's that's the most Andor thing I think that could happen right now.
1: Okay. All right, internet points wagered.
2: Can I have a receipt?
1: (laughs) This podcast will serve as your receipt. Fair enough.
2: Okay, enough of Cyril. So next up, Cassian retrieves his case, which you already basically mentioned, and we talked about more in the intro.
1: Yeah, not much really here, just that, yeah, he's, you know, the blasters and the money and the, and the, um, and the manifesto.
2: How did he get into this room?
1: Well, he's a thief, right? You know, he's, he's good at what he's doing. All right. The, something I want to point out here, cute little, cute little member berry here. The uh, non-human that was sleeping in the uh, hotel bed right. is of the same species as Jin Ursos' cellmate in Rogue One. Oh, that's interesting. A Blutopian. Yeah, I looked. I had to look up the, the race, this the species, but it's, it's called a Blutope. They're they're called Blutopians, and but it has that same sort of like octopus-like face. And I, I saw that little creature sleeping, and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute! And that's the same creature that was in Jin's, uh, Jin's, um, uh prison cell.
2: You know, actually, when you point out Rogue One, I saw on Reddit today that the two non-humans that helped Cassian and Melshi were also a species that were in Rogue One.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, good good pick. Yeah, I didn't catch that at all.
2: I don't know what they're called, but they were there, I promise.
1: All right, well, I'll go, I'll go check the Reddits and figure it out. There you go. One other thing about the uh, space Miami, Uh the opening scene there when when they you know they place us back on uh, uh, on the planet, that whole promenade place where it was filled with people before is now
2: empty. So nobody can enjoy it now.
1: Yeah, it makes you question: do they just roust everybody, or is everybody like sad and they don't want to hang out anymore? It, It was just an interesting, you know. Gave us more of that sense of the uh, uh, that ominous presence of the Empire.
2: And the fact that Luthien has succeeded in making the Empire tighten its grip to where people are having their routines interrupted.
1: Yes. Their enjoyment, their leisure time. Yeah.
2: You know, that's something that, that you see around the world. Like, if you have an economy that's going okay, and the cultures are not being too disrupted, a dictatorship sometimes lasts a while. But the minute you start... Messing with people's personal habits mm-hmm. and personal enjoyment, yeah, you start to piss people off enough to to do something about it.
1: You're right. It's true. It's true.
2: So Luthen succeeding here. And speaking of Luthen, the next scene is Luthen and Saw discussing Spellhouse.
1: So before we get into Luthen and Saw, what did you make of Luthen's weapon when they're searching him when he comes in?
2: Well, it was definitely the cane that he had. Okay. earlier on, it was. Okay, you look at you look at that. It's definitely the cane. Okay, but is the cane also something else? I mean, there's been weird shaped lightsabers before. Yeah, one of the lightsabers in in Rebels is like part gun, part lightsaber. So I I don't think it excludes the possibility.
1: So yeah, that this begs that whole question of, of Are we going to have a force user show up in a force sensitive person, a force user show up at all in this? Show and I know there's been we had some chatter in our Discord about this. I'm sure there's lots of conversation happening elsewhere about this. Do you want a force user in the show? I was thinking about that today, and I could understand and go with it if if it is revealed that Luthen has some way with the force. I won't be disappointed, but I tell you that I will be happier if Luthan is just a man, if Luthan is just a normal human being with no extra powers, because that means he's that dangerous, Mm -hmm. right? He's that kind of (laughs) son of a bitch who is so cold and so calculating and so exacting and so deadly that, you know, that to me is more exciting and interesting than having somebody with magic powers. Counterpoint. Yes. Luthen,
2: if he is a force-sensitive person, and neither Jedi nor Sith, mm-hmm. is the answer to the last Jedi's problem.
1: Now, if he is this, I think you were talking about this on our Discord today, sort of a gray, a gray cloak type person.
2: I don't want him to be a Jedi. Yeah, I don't want him to be a Sith. I want him to be someone who can use a lightsaber, mm-hmm. can use the force. huh but is making his own decisions and maybe he pulls a little bit of light, a little bit of dark, mm-hmm. but doesn't need to follow any doctrine.
1: I am, I would be down for that as well. I would definitely be down for that as well. So if Luthan is this new type of force user, I mean, like, other than Donnie Yen as at as Imwe in Rogue One, who was one with the force, um, but didn't you know, levitate things and choke people and you know, throw his, his stuff. But he used it, obviously, in a Force-sensitive way. Uh, I, and I haven't watched all of the, the animated series, so I don't know what else, or, or read you know, books, so I don't really know what other potential is out there in the extended works. But at least in terms of the television and, and movies, we haven't seen other Force users other than Donnie Yen's character uh be force sensitive and I would if they did bring somebody in, then what your um, your idea, your your hypothesis here, that's one I could buy into. That would be interesting to me.
2: Yeah, like the issue with the force sensitive user plot lines that we've seen recently are that everybody is not just a Jedi, but they're a secret Jedi who's been a skywalker the whole time or a palpatine <laughs> or has been, you know, trained by Obi-Wan Kenobi and was actually Anakin's summer camp buddy. And it's just like everything is so cute about it. Right. You know, it's yeah. just so convenient and and member berry heavy. And it's just it's just cheap. And like giving me like like the Hobbit movies didn't have an issue with having magic in them. They had an issue with the writing you can you don't need to get rid of a magic system to fix the writing in a universe mm-hmm. and so i i want to see jedi storylines force storylines evolve to a way that where they live up to the promise that i saw in the last jedi because i've talked about it, i liked the last jedi movie when it came out uh-huh. i thought that you know the way that uh, the rise of skywalker turned out kind of soured me on the whole trilogy there but the way The Last Jedi opened up the whole, like, hey, maybe it's not good to only be, you know, religiously tied to the light side of the Force. Maybe we do need to have choice in the world and have a morally gray outlook, you know? And if we had more interesting stories like that, I would want more of that, and I would be fine with having Jedi in them.
1: Again, I think it would go to that question of, of it would be recontextualizing the entire franchise. Because we have, I mean, Jedi is a, a, a religious order. It's a, a philosophy. Right. It's a, it's a way of life, uh, sort of a monastic way of life. And if we have somebody like Luthen who has laid waste to his own internal humanity, and then as he says, you know, that he's, that, you know, he yearns to be a savior against injustice without calculating the cost that he's condemned to use the tools of, his, of, of my enemy to defeat them, right? That is not Jedi, <laughs> and that is not Sith.
2: Right. Very interesting. I can't wait to see whether he is or not. And listen, I'm fine if he's not. He does not need to be. Yeah. But I'm saying it will not kill the show for me if he's a Jedi. Right. But not even a Jedi, but if he, if he, ha- if he pulls out a lightsaber, that's going to be interesting to me. That's not going to be a show killer for me. And if it's just a cane, it's just a cane. Right. You know, maybe he's using kyber crystals in his ship, but he's not a, a Jedi.
1: Right. I mean, if he pulls out a a, <laughs> a lightsaber and starts wrecking shop like Darth Vader was wrecking shop at the end of Rogue One, I, I, I'm at least going to be satisfied to see a cool action scene like that. Because he certainly <laughs> did some damage in this episode. Yeah.
2: And in the coldest way. But let's get to that later. Yeah. So, again, Luthan and Saw... Mm, discuss mm. Spellhouse, so let's discuss their actual conversation here
1: let's call it a war baby like it was spicy come on forrest whitaker is like this guy is just bringing it so oh
2: yeah it was really rough and just excellent dialogue all around Luthen, instead of saying no no you can trust me says you can trust me because i can be hurt by you yeah like, not, not even bullshitting him. Right. Just saying, you know, you have dirt on me, which is why you can trust me, which is why I wouldn't give you up the way I'm giving Anto Krieger up.
1: And I think it came to a moment there where Luthen had to make the calculations of what do I tell Saw? And once I tell him, I'm in all the way on this decision and this conversation. And this decision that has to be made because, well, and, and he, even <laughs> he even says, I don't know what you're going to do, right? Like, you're, you're a chaos monkey. You're, you're an X factor. I cannot, I don't know how to uh, incorporate you into my equations. And so he has to walk this very narrow path to get Saw to see past his paranoia. Right, because Saw is freaking out, right? He's like, focus, stay with me, you're avoiding the question, right? And he's got to get him to that decision point, which is, I am being vulnerable to you, and we have to, you know, you have to decide to sacrifice Krieger or not.
2: Now, is that cowardly for Luthen to lay that decision on Saw, though?
1: Well, he says, I didn't want you to have, I didn't want to, to ha- have you have to make this decision, but it was... He wasn't expecting uh, Saw to say that he was in on the Spellhouse job. He was going there thinking they were just having a regular meeting. And then suddenly, like, Saw Guerrero's like, hey, I'm in, let's go. And he's like, oh, shit, uh, no, I think not. And then, boom, you know, he, they're in it, right? From that moment forward. So I don't think he wanted to, I don't think he was trying to, to, I don't think that was a setup to get Saw there. I think that is a natural result of the fact that Saw is unpredictable. Okay. Do you think Saw goes for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think Saw is further radicalized in this moment because he's willing to sacrifice another rebel leader, how no, no matter how much he respects or likes Anton Krieger or any of the others.
2: Right, but do you think that Saw now is going to go help Krieger?
1: No, 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 no. Krieger's, Krieger's done. Krieger's uh is sacrificed. Okay. Uh, Saw Saw and Luthen now have made that decision and and saw is that much closer to Luthen and that much more radicalized in the rebellion. I mean, we're talking about a radical here. Can a radical be even more radicalized? He just was, by saying 30 men plus a rebel leader.
2: Well Luthen does know how to push people's buttons,
1: it seems. He gave Saw the choice, right? And the truth that Saw saw was more powerful because he did the math himself. He worked it out for himself.
2: That's true and I do think that he probably trusts Luther a little bit more now way, now yeah. that he that that Luthan was straight with him.
1: Exactly. There's nothing there's no other way for uh Luthan to play it because uh Saul would have seen right through him.
2: Didn't Luther call himself a coward in the last conversation he did. with Saul? Yeah, he did. So, maybe this is him basically saying like I could have I could have just told you not to do it or I could have told you to do it. Mhm. But I'm going, to give you the, I'm going to give you the decision and make you decide if 30 men die plus Krieger. Exactly. I love, I love how everybody keeps adding plus Krieger. Plus
1: Krieger. <laughs> well, yeah, 30 men, what is Krieger worth, right? 30 men, you know, Krieger's worth 30 men. I think that's, the, that's part of this equation talk that they've been giving us.
2: Okay. That was a cool scene. Again, I'm not sure if it's a lightsaber or not, but I guess uh, maybe we will see in the finale. And maybe, maybe it'll be something that they just tease at the end of the series, which I'd be fine with, too. Okay, so back on the ship, Luthen and Clea talk.
1: So what was cool about this scene was, again, the spycraft. This is, uh, you know, that they're, oh, interested buyers, other parties on the ground, you know, that whole sort of thing. I just really like that they're um, sticking with the rules of their game, uh, even in this intimate moment where we're the only ones watching.
2: Yeah, but you know, they're monitoring communications on Ferex really closely. Why wouldn't they be monitoring communications on Coruscant? I mean, that's where important people are talking. I'm sure that they're monitoring Coruscant in some way.
1: Well, they got a big ass Star Destroyer with like three radar dishes flying over (laughs) in the next scene. So yeah, I certainly hope they're listening. Right, exactly. (laughs) One of the things I, I I understood this intellectually earlier, but it didn't really hit me until this scene was that um, being a uh antiquities dealer is the perfect cover for Luthin. It's like, duh, it was like, it's been there the whole time, and I've understood it, but it didn't really hit me until now when they were using the coded language to talk about the you know the the buying of stuff. that I was like, oh, that is such a good reason for him to be flying around and you know going to all these weird places.
2: And I think that behind clay on the shelves you can see a bunch of both Jedi and Sith artifacts. So he's got access to this stuff.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely got access to things, and I'm sure the I, I haven't gone and looked there, but I'm sure Reddit is full of of uh, Easter egg hunts uh, of what's, what's in this shop.
2: Right. Okay. This is the big one, I think. This is the episode, this is the scene that everybody's talking about.
1: <laughs> My man Luthan. Luthan kicks ass. <laughs> totally. Totally wrecked shop. Oof. Um, just
2: the, if it was just the shrapnel ploy that he used, that would have been a cool enough shot. But they had to take it a step
1: further. Yeah, what was this ship? I, is this a new design? Uh, I would love, maybe, maybe somebody could write in to, to let us know. Like, I, obviously this has not been in the movies before. I don't know if this has been on any of the other shows or books but man that thing was crazy looking
2: that was a custom paint job if i've ever seen one (laughs) i mean the shrapnel bits first of all like so calm like i said last episode i think if i had as much control over my anxiety as luthan did my blood pressure would be like 70 over 20 (laughs) it's just it's just incredible the way that they are about to get him and he's just like, oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, my my engine's overheating. And, like, again, in character as this, like, antique dealer just, you know, doping around, like, doesn't really know what he's doing. I'm a little incompetent. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, I missed that. I missed that button. I'm doing this wrong. Oh, my thruster's on. Oh, that's crazy. Um, but really, at the same time, he's telling them that he's trying to run away to goad them into upping the power of their uh, tractor beam. Right. And then when it's at full, that's when he releases the shrapnel and it just decimates this thing.
1: Yeah, totally awesome. Incredible. Yeah. And it was such a a short battle scene. Like, it's not that long, but it's so devastating and so just uh, precise in delivery. And it just really gave from a from a just an episode of television it just gave the whole episode that jolt of energy that really makes this episode uh so satisfying
2: right i mean the episode would have been pretty good without it yeah, but exactly. it was a really great episode because, because,
1: of, because this. of it yeah no doubt no doubt i'm really bummed now because the fondors burned right like that's you know, they've got his ship ID now, right? You know uh, he'll get another one. Yeah, but that's a cool ship, man. The Fondor, that is a dope ship.
2: Yeah, I mean, he did use a fake transponder. But still. And, you know, people are talking about how common is the hull craft? Mm-hmm. Because it might be a pretty common ship. Like, is this just like the sedan that everybody got in... in- whatever year this is. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like he has a very nondescript ship.
1: It's very Millennium, it ha- but it, like the moment we went on there, uh, onto it the first time, the, the hallways, it was like, oh yeah, this is Millennium Falcon. This is talking Millennium Falcon vibes to me. And even with the turret popping up and the, you know, the, the, the yoke, and I mean, just so much. It was just so Star Wars.
2: Yeah. I don't know if he needs to get rid of it because he did use the Alderaan
1: yeah, code. You know, uh, right. a
2: transponder. Yep. I wonder if using Alderon and getting away is going to lead to intense scrutiny on Alderon. I wonder if they're tying into the original trilogy that way.
1: It definitely works. Uh, definitely plays into that whole narrative structure for sure. I mean, right? Where's he going to go? I, I mean, he's going to Ferrix, right? Like, there's nowhere, no, no place else.
2: Yeah, he did just learn about Cassian's mother, right?
1: Yep. You know, because and that that was the whole coded conversation with Clea.
2: Right. Okay. So let's talk about the elephant in the room, the uh, two lightsaber beam elephants <laughs> oh, in the room.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. That is uh, set the internet afire.
2: Okay. So he could not be a force user. He could have had these installed by someone familiar with how to make, how to use kyber crystals. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing to me was that they were red.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, good point.
2: Red lightsabers are generally used by dark side force users. And it's because it's see, like most of the lightsaber colors. I did some like mild research on this, but it seems like most of the lightsaber colors have just been declassified as meaning something Uh with the new Uh canon. Like there was some talk in Legends where they meant something. But the one that does really mean something is definitely red because you have to bleed the kyber crystal. Okay which is something very dark uh-huh. in order to make it red. So you're not just harnessing it. You're like hurting the Kyber crystal. Huh. And so Luthen having two red sides,
1: what does that mean? And they didn't, I looked at the scene a couple of times. We never see the length of these things fully extended. Like it's like when we do kind of see it there, they're, they're whack on the two ships and then the scenes over. So Theoretically, they're quite short, relatively speaking, and the only time that we ever see a beam weapon like that, that kind of thing, is a lightsaber, right? That is just, it just screams lightsaber.
2: Right. I think that they have to be from kyber crystals, but I don't think that that means that he needs to be a force user, but it certainly is very interesting, and it could just be that he salvaged some red kyber crystals or red lightsabers from you know, Sith fighters or dead inquisitors who, right? Uh, you know, who lost them along the way. I mean, he is an antique dealer. Yeah. I'm sure he has access to some kind of things. We know he had a kyber crystal to give to Cassian. Right. So, you know, there's so many possibilities with this. It does not necessarily mean he is, you know, doing anything that we didn't know about, but he, it is super cool either way.
1: Yep. For sure. and, and um, It's the Darth Maul mobile. It, it's very much that kind of moment, right? Like, oh, like a, you know, like here's one. Nope, two, it's a staff. Like, watch out. Whoa. Yeah. Right? It, it's a very, very shock and awe kind of moment.
2: Yeah. Sort of reminds me in, in Rebels, and, and I'll, I'll keep referencing Rebels because I'm watching it and I'm loving it. Uh, the Inquisitors, who also show up in, in Obi-Wan, but I don't know how deeply they fight. Uh, but the inquisitors and rebels have this cool thing where they like unlock their lightsaber and it spins and creates this like wall of lightsaber ooh and I feel like it was sort of like that like spin, and also people are doing a callback to the Phantom Menace where baby Anakin goes, try spinning or something like that uh-huh so a lot of fun a lot of a lot of good callbacks, but like in a in a way that was not incredibly direct, which is what I have come to expect from this show right. Okay. Do you have anything else to say about Luthan?
1: No, he's just a very dangerous man, and I'm really enjoying his character.
2: Cool. And can we just say, poor Imperial officer who just wants to...
1: (laughs) I forgot about that, yeah.
2: (laughs) You know, we own the city is back in Star Wars. He's like, yeah, let's just practice. Let's just pull him over. Um but it turns out that that was a bad idea and he just lost a bunch of ships and probably his job.
1: Oh, man. And you know what they do to Imperial officers who screw up like that? <laughs> He's shitting himself.
2: You going to Darth Vader now, baby. Yeah, that's right. Okay, we've got the last scene here. Cassian gets the news about Marva.
1: Oh, this was uh, this is a, a really important moment uh, on, a, on a couple of levels. Just from a... a Filmmaking standpoint, I just love the sound of the ocean as it comes in as we, you know, cut to, to Cassian's face at the payphone uh, in Space Miami. And it just, you know, the, the, the sound and then how he just sort of is rocking back in with the news, but then trying to bottle it up and contain it. Like you can't contain the ocean, you know, it's just so vast and it's so big. And his feelings are that, but yet he masters himself. Like, wow, that, that was just really, really intense.
2: Very emotional. Again, Diego Luna is just excellent at emoting on his face. Uh, he does not need to deliver a line to deliver an emotion. Yeah. And that's been something through the whole series that's been carrying us, especially during the scenes where he was in the prison, but he had not come to terms with it yet. Yeah. Did a lot of work there. Uh, and it did a lot of work here because he can't say anything to Melshi. He is just alone. Yeah. He's just totally alone and you could see it in him.
1: Yeah. All right, so here's my big Cassian theory, uh, whatever you want, however you want to call this, my this encapsulation. He's free now. There's nothing. Yeah, he, he may have feelings for Bix and, and Brasso and, and B2, but with Marva passing, there's nothing like he is a, he's completely free now. There's no one who knows his past. He can be whoever he needs to be going forward. Nobody has leverage over him anymore. Like, oh, you know, we've got your mom and, you know, like, you know, do what we say or else. So going forward from here, who can Cassian become? You know, they've tried to break him. You know, they've tried to imprison him. You know, who are you going to become when that happens? Now everything's gone. He's got money. He's got uh, this, fire. He's, you know, this, this fire that is, has been kindling in him and, you know, in, in the face of all this you know, injustice from the Empire. Like, my man's ready now, right? The, that was the last thing that was holding him to his past.
2: And yet he's going to go back to Ferex anyway, probably.
1: Yep. And then that's where it's all going to come to head.
2: Because he's got to just say goodbye to Marva, which, you know, I get it. Right. But it's, it's probably not going to go too well.
1: Uh, for other people, <laughs> I think. And, and we do. like It's like, okay, Vel's on her way back, right? Uh, Dedra you know, is probably going to show up. Um, we're pretty sure Cyril's headed back that way. More than likely, Luthan is headed that direction. So all of that's our principles. Yeah, Cinta is there. Vicks, Brasso. Yep. B2. I'm worried for B2, man. I'm straight up. I'm worried for B2. Well,
2: that's the thing, though, is... Sure. Cassian has plot armor, but almost nobody else does. And so it can be a meaningful battle where we can yes. have the risk of losing someone we care about. Yeah. And we probably will lose several people we care about. Yep, And that is a good prequel because it, it added characters for us to care about that we can lose, even though we know that some characters are going to make it.
1: And their deaths are going to mean something. Right. And they're going to mean something to our characters going forward. Right. Um, just this last scene- it's just Rogue One, right? He's just standing there on the beach with the sunset, sun. You know, I'm guessing it's a sunrise probably, and then that just plays back to Luthen's uh, line: "I burn my decency for a sunrise that I'll never see." You know, for somebody else's sunrise that I'll never see. Like, just excellent way to put a cherry on top of this episode.
2: Very good tie-in with Rogue one, as you've always pointed out. I can't wait to watch it after this <laughs> season. i'm gonna I'm gonna pop it on the like right after the season nice. finale probably. Let's go. okay, David, let's take a quick break and when we get back, we'll take some listener feedback. And we're back. We've got listener feedback for you, so let's jump in with Gail Kay, who says, Thanks for the amazing Andor coverage. Hey, thanks, Gail. On Rewatch, One Way Out packed a double emotional hit for me. Kino Loy used that phrase as a rallying cry, knowing that one way out of the building was across water, on all sides, and he couldn't swim. His decision to lead here was truly heroic, a jaw-dropping and powerful performance by Andy Serkis. I hope he gets a nod during award season and isn't overlooked. Keep up the great coverage, Gail.
1: Yeah, Gail, definitely. I've heard some chatter about like, the whole thing of one way out, and, and did Kino know that they were or not, you know, that they were uh, surrounded by water? And I to me, it, it doesn't matter as much whether he knew or not. The fact that he was all in and and just taking each step as it came and and giving himself wholly to it, like that's the the emotional charge that was there for me. But I agree that um, uh, if we if we do assume that he did know, that makes his sacrifice all the more poignant.
2: Right. No, Andy Circus was amazing, and i'm I'm sad that he's gone in this season, but yeah. I'm really glad for the time that we had with him.
1: His character had a significant impact on Cassian, right? Like when he uses Cassian's line in the uh, on the microphone to to get to rally everybody. Like Cassian will always carry Kino forward. Like Kino is a part of his journey into you know the person that he becomes. And I think that's just really, uh, really cool. Really great writing.
2: I think Cassian, learned how to inspire here.
1: Yeah. For sure. He learned, he, he saw himself as a leader.
2: Right. Okay, so next up is Kurt, who says, Hi guys, can't wait to see what treats this week's episode brings us. I guess he wrote this before uh, this episode. Yep. You raised a question of who the guy watching Marva is. This may be too obvious, but I just assumed it was an Imperial, as previous episode stated that Dedra knows about Marva and is watching her. Perhaps it's too much for this program to show us something that has already been stated, but... I think until we learn otherwise, I will assume this. Well, you were right, Kurt. Good work. You win some internet points. All right, moving on to Tim, aka Double T from Melbourne.
1: Hey, we're big in Australia.
2: Uh, apparently. I mean, we we keep getting these Australian emails. Thank you.
1: You know, I lived in, in Australia for about a year of my life.
2: Well, I worked for Outback Steakhouse for a little <laughs> while.
1: Does that count? <laughs> you just admitted that on podcast. <laughs>
2: well... You know what? We all have our Yes, our we do. Our jobs. secret shames. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't work there anymore. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay. Hey, fellows, Loving your show. The latest episode was a solid place setter for the finale, which I am as pumped as I've ever been for an episode of TV in years.
1: I'm with you there, Tim.
2: I wanted to expand on some of the thematic work they've been doing over the past few episodes, in addition to what you've already highlighted. To me... The now iconic speech by Luthen in episode 10 has so many layers to it and so much significance in relation to the whole of Star Wars. If we take one example, his line, I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. Obviously, there's the militant tactics, the killing, the violence, and the sacrifice of innocent people. But there's also parallels on a more personal level. Think about Luthen meeting his contact, in secret, in some dingy industrial area on Coruscant. The first time we see him, he's looking ominous as a cloaked figure, standing in darkness. I immediately thought of Palpatine, who also used to hold clandestine meetings with his agents in the bowels of Coruscant. This was when he was setting up his plans for an empire under the nose of the Republic. In a similar way, Luthen is setting up the Rebellion while hiding in plain sight from the Empire. Both of them use a fake public persona to aid their deceptions. One as an upstanding politician, the other as a foppish, antique dealer. In both cases, both people are manipulated and trapped into serving the cause. Mon Mothma is also doing a sort of reverse Palpatine, as a senator pulling strings from the background to ultimately bring him down. As Luthen says, they're using the enemy's tools. So yeah, apart from being one of the coolest monologues you'll ever hear, it's just so damned smart, multifaceted, and tuned in with the lore. Couldn't be more impressed with the writing of this show. Double T from Melbourne.
1: Yeah, I didn't... um, In all the the hoopla of uh, last episode, one of the things I didn't get to touch on was the visuals of that scene in the bowels of uh, Coruscant. The narrow walkway, the coffin-like structures leading back away from Luthen, his cape. Even the way that... um, Stellan Skarsgård was just sort of leaning, that he sort of has this front forward lean to the side that uh, his character has. all of and then Lonnie is trapped, right? You're trapped, Lonnie. And where's Lonnie? He's in the elevator. He's got nowhere to go, and he's not in control of that elevator either. Beautiful visually, uh, absolutely. And it just added so much to the impact of um, that monologue that Luthen delivers us. Mm,
2: I think that. The monologue recontextualizes, you've been saying, David, most of what we've already seen in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I've been saying, too, is you have Luke and Leia and Han being the slimmiest person in the original trilogy, whereas he really is not that bad. According to George Lucas, he didn't shoot first, even so. And... You have these people who will be heroes, and there will be statues made of them, and they will be, you know, worshipped as these heroes of the rebellion, whereas it would have never happened without these dirty tactics. Mm -hmm. And so it was really great to see this kind of world building in Star Wars, where I think it's been sorely lacking for decades.
1: Yep. And I think that's the thing that we've all been wanting, but not been able to articulate. And that's why when Rogue One came around, we were like, whoa, like, this is amazing, because... Underneath, we, I think a, a lot of people, you know, recognize that there is more to the story than, uh, you know, the farm boy making good on, on you know, his father's legacy, right? Um, that there's actual grit and grime and blood and sweat and tears that are involved in getting us to that point. And we finally are getting some of that storyline. Yeah.
2: I hope we see more of this and not just this particular era, but I hope that they recontextualize other parts of the Star Wars canon and and branch out to places that we haven't seen. I know that uh, we're looking forward to the Acolyte, which is the yeah. Old Republic, the High Republic, I'm sorry, story that, that may have some kind of Sith influence, may have some kind of non-Jedi force user influence. So I'm really excited to seeing that and what else they do. I hope that it's of the same caliber as Andor and let's see
1: i'm uh, i'll be interested too as you continue your uh, exploration in the animated series uh, what more you'll learn about mon mothma and uh palpatine and the senate and how all of that goes down Cause, um i am the senate <laughs> good that's really good you and you're talking to it's better than my jennifer cool yes yeah it's coming along though but the, both of them are getting are getting there you have a you have a not second career not from
2: a jedi you
1: are going to have a third career yeah podcaster, your real life, and uh, a voice actor.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, J8s on Twitter. So Luthen can't take credit for the attack. If it's meant to spark a rebellion, it needs credibility. It needs to be the act of someone with influence, someone with political power, maybe a senator. He goes on in a second tweet. It's a stretch that Luthen is using, Mon, but there are two headlines here. Antique Stealer attacks Empire, terrorist. Senator goes to war with Emperor, rebellion.
1: I thought this was an interesting take for sure. Um, what's going to Because we know that Mon Mothma is ultimately driven into open rebellion and is in one of the you know, leaders of the rebellion in a cave, right? You know, with, uh, with everybody else. So, how does that play out? And uh, what is Luthen's role in um, having Mon Mothma <laughs> move out of her fancy digs on Coruscant?
2: Okay, I'm going to do a spoiler for Rebels here. So okay. it's Rebels like, Season 2, I think. So, so fast forward like two minutes, two minutes if you need to. There's a plot line in Rebels Season 2 where the Empire places this senator in exile who is trying to spark a rebellion as a plant, and he, sa- he basically leaves clues in his messages to attract real rebels to help him, uh, and then the Empire comes and picks them up as they come. Oh. And so I think that, first of all, they, the Empire uses resistance right. to help their cause, and it's something that is played with a lot in this universe, is senators not being who they really are.
1: Interesting. I wonder how much they've taken that into account, uh, or if that's just one of those happy coincidences as part of the creative process.
2: Yeah. I mean, especially when the Senate is basically the only governing body in this universe other than the Empire, mm-hmm. other than the Emperor. So it's kind of hard to have a lot of variety on who's doing the undercover stuff. Right. If you're going to go with politicians. So I think it's, it might just be coincidence. But I do think that it's, there's been a lot of interesting plot lines with senators recently. Okay. Last feedback Christy History via a five star Apple Podcast review. Hey, thanks, Christy. Again, we got a five star review. review? Please. Some people like us. Some people don't. <laughs> Look at it. Yeah. The, so, some people give us reviews that 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 tell us to stop talking about generations.
1: <laughs> I will. Okay. So quick shameless plug on the on the back of Christie's comment here. Quite honestly, though, um, uh, ratings and reviews like literally help our standing. And uh, help us get our podcast seen by other people. Uh, it's not just coo- you know, just not warm fuzzies for us, but it actually uh, helps us appear in different sort of rankings and searches when people are, are digging around for podcasts. So if you do feel moved, we would definitely love more uh, comments and ratings uh, if you feel so moved.
2: Help us play Apple's game of on first.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: Okay, so back to Christy's comment. Uh, mostly, it gave five stars, mostly because I agree with you both that this is the best TV show of the year. Re-Why Luther lies, Re-Aldani, may be as simple as the less everyone knows, the better, just as a matter of operation. His soliloquy, I think, is less rehearsed and more an explosion of sorrow, guilt, remorse, anger, and fear. In a moment, he can safely vent. It's all the confusion of emotions he has had to suppress for 15 years. I also immediately thought of Harry Selden when he spoke of an equation, so perhaps he used to be a higher education professor or a university administrator or a sociologist. And perhaps he lost his whole family 15 years ago.
1: I like this headcanon. I think this is some uh, cool stuff. I I do definitely... Uh, I also had the Harry Seldon thought when he said equation, because the way he said equation, I was like, whoa, wait a minute, what's that? And if you're a Foundation fan, I heard that uh, we're, I think, going to get something this year. I know they're definitely actively shooting, so uh, fingers crossed. Um, But yeah, I like this headcanon about like maybe he was just sort of just a guy, you know? Maybe maybe he's reprising his role from uh, (laughs) your favorite movie
2: goodwill hunting yes it's not your fault Luthen. it's not your fault
1: i thought of you when uh when when i read this line at first
2: so i saw another theory about Luthen on reddit Uh and again i would i would encourage you if you want to stay i guess spoiler free i don't know how spoilery this is because it's literally a theory um but maybe fast forward a minute or two if you want to stay totally spoiler free um, I saw this theory that maybe he's the parent of a child who is Order sixty sixth.
1: Oh, interesting!
2: That his his child was brought to the Jedi Order recently before Palpatine executed Order sixty six and you know killed all the Jedi, most of the Jedi, the younglings.
1: Did it? Does it line up with the the timeline?
2: So that I don't know. Okay, maybe somebody can write in on the timeline. Oh,
1: there are timeline aficionados out there. That is for sure.
2: I thought that I thought that would be a really interesting tragic backstory, though.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I, I like the fact that uh, I like the idea that he, there's got to be some inciting incident for Luthen to to write that equation, right? To to commit himself to to devastate his interior life to that degree, to compromise his morality to that degree, to be able to do this, whatever happened had to have been very significant for him, obviously. Right.
2: Okay. Spoilery possible thing over. Um, Why don't we wrap this up, David? Yep. Let's do some quick program reminders. Yeah. Yeah. We do this episode every Saturday until the end of the season. And then we're actually going to do a season wrap up afterwards with uh, a guest from uh, the Double Dragon podcast from Electric Bookaloo, the Game of Thrones reading podcast currently on uh, the Bald Move Network. You can check out the House of the Dragons. Mr. Anthony in the house. Yes. Maester Anthony is coming on. So he's going to discuss the end of the season with us. Um, also, on other shows, we have The White Lotus coming out every Wednesday, and that's going through mid-December, so you'll you'll see us there.
1: Really enjoying uh, season two so far.
2: Really good stuff. Very different show, but a lot to talk about.
1: <laughs> very different, but yes, yeah, very good.
2: A lot to talk about. Yeah. If you're a fan of Prestige TV in any way, this is the show for you. Okay, and we've also got our foot back in Tolkien's door. We're back in our Hobbit holes reading The Silmarillion, starting this a uh, week, uh, about a week from the time this episode is coming out, right before Thanksgiving, we're going to have the first Silmarillion story, which is the Ina Lindelay, the first story in the Silmarillion. So you can get your questions in before uh, the end of the day after this comes out. So you're, you're cutting it pretty close. But the, other than that, you can always talk with us on the Discord or send in uh, messages for the next episode.
1: And uh, that email for that is lotr at thelorehounds.com.
2: Right, right. We're, we're just going straight Lord of the Rings for it. And OK, speaking of Lord of the Rings references, we have also got our Patreon benefit second breakfast coming out the day after this podcast on Sunday. Uh, and that's basically where we just talk about shows that we're not covering and books that we're reading and video games or tabletop games we're playing. Uh, and we also take questions about whatever you want to ask about, you know, doesn't need to be show related, but it can be. And uh, that's just for patrons. So that'll be on our premium feed on Sunday.
1: Uh, also coming up, if you're a Bulb Move listener, uh, Jim and Aaron are covering 1899 on Netflix, which is the sort of, um, I don't know if it's a prequel to Dark, but it's certainly by the same creators. And so I think scratching that same itch, I, I loved Dark. I was blown away by that um, series and, and really enjoyed it. So Jim and Aaron are covering it in batches because it was a single drop on Netflix. But go over to Bald Move and check that out. Also, we've got uh, Christmas with Bald Move is coming up. Uh, If you're not a Bald Move listener, the whole month of December, Jim and Aaron pick out a bunch of movies to review. We've got some live streams. We've got a gift exchange. So go over to baldmove.com and uh, check out the Christmas page for that. We have a lot of fun uh, in our community uh, when it comes to the holiday seasons.
2: Very cool. All right, David, I think that's it for me. Now, I want to give a shout-out to Samartian, who is in our Lore Master tier, where they get a shout-out on each one of our podcasts. Again, if you want to write into this show, write into andoratthelorehounds.com. Otherwise, we will see you next week.
1: The Andor podcast is produced by The Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to andor at thelorehounds.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, on your podcast app of choice. To get ad-free versions of this and all other Lorehounds podcasts, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Thanks for listening!